Welcome to our latest edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Tim Stutt, ESG Lead for Australia and partner in our corporate practice, and I'm joined by Mel Debenham, partner in our Environment, Planning and Communities practice. This episode, we're excited to have with us James Palmer, HSF's previous chair and senior partner, and one of the UK's leading M&A, capital markets and corporate lawyers. James has particularly deep experience with corporate governance and regulation, so we're thrilled to have him joining us. James, we like to start each episode with a personal reflection. So can we start by asking you, why is ESG important and what does it mean to you personally? Thank you very much, Tim, and and thanks to you and Mel for inviting me to do this. Um, I I mean, for me, um, ESG is a phrase that has emerged in recent years, and it covers a range of different things. Uh, And obviously, I I cover the G bit governance in my day to day practice. The E bit is covering uh, is is a huge subject for all our clients and and actually for everybody, whatever they do these days. But actually, for me, I sort of start with the S bit, the social bit. And I think that um, it's very easy for people to think lawyers are only motivated by advising their clients. I'm sure clients would would love to think that that was our only motivation. But actually, I think. Uh, most lawyers have uh, do have a sense of s of social purpose in what they do, and the outside world may not always recognise it, but I, I think it is there, and I certainly feel I've always had that. I, for me, work has always been about trying to do something that is useful uh, and socially useful. And I, I, by the way, I'm not trying to sound sort of special in that. I actually think that's true of almost everybody. We all want to do something useful and relevant. And which is uh, purposeful beyond our day-to-day jobs, and 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 I think it is not just about what we do outside of uh, of our jobs, uh, the add-ons, you know, pro bono or whatever it might be. I actually think if we can do our jobs with a social focus and with purpose, I think it is uh, life is a lot more fun, and I think it gives you a framing for how you approach what you do. So for me, uh, purpose in uh, what we do and why we do it and why other people do things and the, and the tensions that arise between purposes are something I'm fascinated by. But I, I certainly wouldn't have had the career I've had if I uh, wasn't driven by, uh, by a sense of wanting to try and contribute in a very, very small way to doing something socially useful. So for me, everything is framed through, through that. And, and actually the clients uh, I work with so many of them now have very, very close sense of purposes as well. James, I think um, your observation around sort of social contribution being a, you know, a frame for how we're, um, how we do our jobs and how we approach our work, you know, it's useful. It's something that resonates with me. And when I think about ESG, um, ESG is a bit of a frame for businesses and how they operate within the broader community because, um, you know, they, they're not in silos. Um, and I know you're a really keen observer on framing of ESG issues by companies. Um, it continues to be a very dynamic space, but what do you think is the key to not getting caught up in bureaucracy or box ticking or on the other side of the equation, virtue signalling? Well, I think that the key is authenticity. And I think that the key to authenticity is not pretending that you're getting everything right. 
And I think it is the nature of communication, whether our firms or our clients, that we want to kind of show the good things we're doing. We want to be thought, we want people to understand. And actually, I think being silent about good things you do is not necessarily a good thing because people project into the gap. If you don't communicate, people will fill that space with their own assumptions, which, because we're human, are inevitably imperfect, just as my assumptions about others are imperfect. And and so I think the communication is good, but I, I have a real bugbear about communication of any sort, whether it's a pitch document or, or a website or an annual report and accounts or a securities market disclosure or a very well-intended reaction to important events that is not authentic. And, and I think that I have, I am full of, uh, as, as, as you and Tim know, I'm full of kitsch sayings. And one of my kitsch sayings is, I never trusted anybody who tried to present to me that they were perfect. Uh, because I've never met a perfect person. I've looked in the mirror too often to, to believe in perfection. And, and I think that, um, Actually, as human beings, we so many of us feel pressure to present that we're getting everything right. We know all the answers. We everything we do is completely perfect and has no harms or negative implications. But we've all offended somebody by mistake. Some some people have offended people on purpose. <laughs> I, I try to avoid that, but I certainly do it by mistake from time to time. We all do things that don't have impacts that we wanted or had thought about. And I think this is true for individuals, for groups of people, for societies, for business organizations. And a business to me, it's just a label for a group of people, a very complex matrix of people, uh, part of society. Uh, but if you're not if you're not going to be honest about what you're trying to do, the fact you don't get everything right, you're constantly trying to learn and improve, then I think you don't connect with people and you lose trust. Even if you are speaking truth, I, I think you've got to really think about how your message is heard by the readers. And don't duck the difficult stuff is my other bit of advice. James, just on that point around continuously learning and improving and the fact that perfection is... Um, you know, un unattainable. It, it is a process of continuously learning and improving. I think one of the issues a lot of our clients struggle with is the pace of change in this area, the volume of, of regulation, but also the changing concepts and expectations from a, an external perspective, whether we're talking about community expectations or regulatory expectations or investor expectations. What do you see as the first steps in developing a successful ESG strategy and really marshalling efforts to stay ahead of these changes? It's a great question, Tim. And if I had the answer, we'd be making a fortune. I mean, I have some views, but I, I think it's really hard because I think different people have different expectations. I mean, we all know it. It's a statement of the, all my statements are usually of the blindingly obvious, and it's another one of those. But but sometimes talking about the obvious is is useful. Um, people have misunderstandings, misapprehensions. They project motives onto people that are not necessarily right. So I think, what, where do I start? I start, as I've already said, with purpose. What are we here to do? What, what? And again, in an organization, you know, you can have a framing purpose in a company, in a, in a firm, uh, but different people have different interpretations of it. But you've got to have a core sense of what that is, in my view. Um, and I think that you've also got to, going back to the start of your question about learning, I think you've got to 
actually recognize that you're operating in an external context we're part of a wider world and instead of while we've got to have a purpose that is framed by what each business is trying to do whether it's uh, whether it's uh, providing accounting services or 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 um, IT or software or legal advice or whatever it doesn't matter what it is what's our service that we're trying to do well but just from time to time step back and look at that context and just listen to people and i you know i'm i'm a great talker and uh, and and therefore not always the best listener but actually i do enjoy hearing views that challenge me and I think that that's part of learning. So I think if you're not engaging and you're not listening and you're not open to being challenged, as you say, in a very fast changing world, I think it is very easy to get stuck uh, where where you were. Because let, let's talk Turkey about it. You know, the moral judgments that we make today are very different from those we made when I started working in 1986 or even 10 or 20 years ago. And we learn about things. We get new insights. Uh, you know, how many people talked openly in their businesses about their LGBTQ colleagues in 1986 when I started? Well, I didn't see any. How many actually acknowledged uh, racial or community tension? Some some did, but, but often international businesses. But but these things, the world's expectations changes and we change and we learn from that. And so but but I think at the same time, what you've got to do is be careful, as you said, about avoiding virtue signaling. You've got to you've got to make sure that you are uh, you're you're not just responding to the issue of the moment in a way that tells people what they want to hear on that issue, that you do stand for something, you've got a thoughtful position, and you're able to articulate your response in that way. Because otherwise, I think you can get drawn to endless quick responses, which uh, respond to the immediate emotions of a situation completely naturally. And I'm not saying you shouldn't respond to that, you shouldn't recalibrate, I think you should. But I think you have to be careful to, to have a set of consistent principles that you stick to. And, and you know, if you think you are providing a useful product or service in your business, don't be embarrassed about that, you know, uh, and we can come on and talk about some of the challenges for specific sectors. Uh, but, but I think that there's a lot of wishful thinking, you know, particularly in the E area, where people want us to be able to do everything uh, on a net zero basis immediately. Well, that's, you know, that's a great goal, but it's not the world we're in today. When you talk about being um, purpose-led and having purpose as um, a guiding force for the organisation, it makes me think immediately of governance and the role of governance, because in a lot of ways, governance is the framework where you channel down from purpose through to the activities of the organisation and you, you create alignment. How do you see... Um, there is a very large focus on E factors, environment, climate. We're starting to see quite a lit, quite a lot around social issues as well. Um, some of which we've mentioned. Um, how do you see the role of G or the governance, particularly in in that idea of coming back to purpose and and um, bringing to bear purpose in what the organization does? Well, you and I are both governance lawyers, uh, so we, uh, we we both understand it is important. 
Um, but but again, just to step back, as I invariably irritatingly do, um, I uh, I think that governance is valuable and is important, but I think it is not the end in itself. It's a means to the end. It's a means to creating a system that is going to make it more likely that you are thoughtful about providing a great service, providing a great product, doing a great job and doing so in a way that you're proud of and the people in your organization are proud of and, and those in the world outside understand and, and hopefully respect. Uh, so I think there is a critical role for governance. And I, th I think having had a leadership role um, uh, or different leadership roles um, from, from sort of management to board uh, in my time and also in small ways outside the firm, uh, but also having spent my career advising boards, I think that um, it's inevitable that executives and people working in a business and indeed those on a board will start to develop assumptions about how things are. And I think governance frameworks can facilitate that the step back and getting, a, because we're all pulled to the day-to-day, -day, we're all pulled to the immediate, we're pulled to the thing that is immediately in front of us, the crisis, the demand, the product supply issue, the business opportunity, whatever it is that, that, a, that an organization is trying to achieve. And I think we can sometimes get so focused on those small issues, which are fundamental and doing them well is fundamental, that we can fail to step back and keep asking ourselves these bigger questions about what are we trying to do? Are we doing things consistently? Are we being authentic? And I'm not talking about in an angry box check way. I'm just talking about in, a, in an outcomes oriented way, in a way that is trying to drive better outcomes. So I do believe good governance is key. But I think governance is actually talked about as heavily as being at the board level. I actually think governance is about, it's more than that, because governance is also about every layer of an organization. You know, wherever you've got a leader, uh, you know, the, the scope, that 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 leader will, will uh, drive the behaviors of the people who they're leading. And, you know, organizations assume leaders learn how to be good leaders. Well, I, 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 learned that I wasn't as good a leader as I thought until I had more and more experience at it. And, and I think that uh, people don't always understand the way that they behave, how it's received. And, and therefore, I think governance is actually about the board and the processes at a leadership level to step back and think about these things and to challenge yourself and set goals. But I also think it's about looking at how you're going to make that real and actually execute on goals the whole way through an organization. And you can't do that, in my experience, just by command and control. Pure diktat doesn't work. Uh, there's a very well-known book by a writer called Simon Sinek called Start With Why. I, I find that a very persuasive position. If you wanna make something happen, explain to people why. And that is why I think purpose is so important because again, if your governance is to designed to drive your purpose, you can explain that and people will debate it in that in that context. James, you, you earlier mentioned um, what you've seen over the course of your career and moral compasses changing. Um, so to close out our discussion, I was hoping you might share with us some observations around ethical considerations for ESG issues. Look, there are numerous examples that spring to mind, like working with or investing in hydrocarbon businesses or achieving a just transition and the costs to be borne by developing countries versus um, developed countries. However, 
I think it would be remiss of us not to also acknowledge the terrible conflict we're pres presently witnessing um, and Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, which throws up different ESG and investment issues again. And I was going to say perhaps unique issues, but maybe they're not. Um, what are your thoughts about navig navigating the ethical dimensions here? That's an easy one to finish with. Uh, not really. Um, thank you, Mel. But it is an important <laughs> question. I mean, look, I mean, this is the heart of so many of the ethical tensions for for uh, every business and and you know let's personalize it for us as a professional services business uh that there are huge issues and you've covered a whole range of issues i mean the hydrocarbons and a net zero just transition uh issue you raised first i think is is fascinating i know there are a lot of people out there who are very angry with us as an organization that we represent oil and gas companies and other uh, businesses uh, that have been active in the hydrocarbon space um, uh, and I understand their judgments and and I understand that some people may not want to work on those things and but I'm not actually embarrassed that we do I think it's partly about how we do it um, you know we certainly shouldn't be trying to do things where we're hiding things or or being deceitful or tricky or or, or consciously doing it in order to uh, negate net zero goals. I don't think we should be doing those things, but I don't think those are our purposes or our clients' purposes where we get engaged. I do think there are moral judgments that you have to make about who you're going to represent, uh, but I think um, for reasons I'll come on to, you also have to be a little bit careful about not becoming very extreme very early, because I think there are negative social consequences of that too, but I'll, I'll come back to those. I mean, in the hydrocarbon space, it, it's well known, I look after some of our biggest uh, global energy clients, and I have thought about it, but I'm, um, again, I'll probably get a whole lot of inbound over this, but I'm very, very comfortable with it because uh, actually, as we saw in the UK last autumn, when we uh, suddenly had shortages of fuel at the petrol pumps and nobody could fill their car, as we're seeing now with spiraling prices where the British government is now talking about re-drilling re, re, uh, re in the North Sea again because of the, the potential close off of Russian oil and gas. I mean, you know, it, it's just more complicated. There are competing issues here. Of course, net zero is an unbelievably important goal. And uh, and I absolutely believe in that, you know, uh, as I look at the, the next generations, my children and, and the generations after them, as, as so many of us look at it that way. And we've got to take it really seriously. But let's be truthful. It is not the single only goal for everybody in everything in life. Today, social stability, the ability to lead lives, the ability to power uh, the activities that make life stable and secure uh, are really important as well. Uh, I, I'm not arguing for slowing down pursuit of the goals, but what I'm saying is recognize the context we're in today and be realistic about it. And I also think one of the really exciting things in the hydrocarbon space is it's the firms like ours that are doing, have, have got a history as energy firms that have done the most um, renewables work. Um, and, you know, we are at the cutting edge of renewables work and our lawyers working in the area are passionate about it, as, as you both know, and people want to. But actually, if you don't understand the energy sector, are you seriously going to get that work? And so these are just harsh realities of choices that people have to face up to. So, so you know, the hydrocarbon space, I think, is, is very sensitive. There's a lot of criticism for being in it, but that's the rationale. And I do believe it is purposeful. I think you touched on Ukraine. 
Now, um, we all know on this call, and this, this is being recorded slightly before we release it, that we've just told our staff uh, uh, within the last few hours that we are closing our Moscow office um, over the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. And, and that um, was a very morality driven decision. It was not just driven by external noise. I think that I know, I mean, I'm not involved in that decision. I'm no longer senior partner here, but I know that everybody involved in that decision has only viewed it through a moral lens of balancing the horror that the world has at, uh, at war in Europe. And, and again, to make a very sensitive comment, uh, but you know, there are wars in other places. We tend to focus, we tend to be alarmed by wars that we relate to and are nearer to us and more proximate to us. And again, there are some very complex moral issues there about other conflicts and how human beings react to those. But I think that everybody's been horrified, but our Russian colleagues and friends and the, those who've been working in Russia for years, are these are good people. And these are really amazing, good people. And this decision has massive consequences for them. And so all I've really urged is people to understand that you do have to take moral positions and judgments, but please don't think they're easy. And what, one of the points I wanted to come back to, and I, I alluded to earlier, but didn't come back to, is about um, access to justice. I think part of our purpose, you know, law to me, is society's system for building trust. Uh, that's what the law is. It's a mechanism for establishing trust between people in societies. And none of us thinks the law is perfect, but it's a set of rules that we can apply and we know will be applied that actually makes it safe for us to walk down the street. That makes it, if we walk into a, a supermarket and buy some food, we know there's standards and we've got rights in relation to that. Our everyday lives are reinforced by having a legal system. And I think that that is an unbelievably important social purpose that almost nobody talks about and everybody takes for granted, but I don't think we should take for granted. And I do also think that while each organization should be taking moral decisions, let's be careful before we embrace a world where no law firm and no lawyer is allowed to provide legal advice to people. Because if we move to a world where there is no legal advice to constituencies of people, well, you're certainly not going to have criminal defense of murderers. Uh, you know, we, we, if we start to remove access to justice uh, completely, and I'm not saying individual firms shouldn't take their own position as we have done, but if you remove access to justice because of reactions, you've started to create a precedent about people not actually being entitled to get legal advice. And I think one of the hallmarks of a democracy and a rule of law is that everybody's entitled to go to court, even if they're going to get thrown out in court. James, uh, you've, you've wrapped it up on, I think, an excellent note in light of the grave scenario that we're, we're seeing unfold before our eyes. Um, and I know I speak for Tim in saying that access to justice is, is um, a central tenet um, of our practice and, and um, we absolutely agree with you in that regard. Um, we've covered some wide ranging issues today, um, but given the gravity of what we've covered, I think it's appropriate that we close on this point um, and no, no fact 
ESG factor share today. Um, but Tim and I would like to thank James very much for your observations and leave our listeners to further ponder the big questions and how to respond with authenticity. So thank you for tuning in. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.